Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. These next two episodes will conclude our annual conference content. We hope you enjoyed it, and we're looking forward to seeing you at next year's conference. We were joined by Rick Rybeck. Rick is the founder and director of Just Economics, LLC, a firm founded in order to guide policy towards helping families. Their goal is to promote job creation, affordable housing, transportation efficiency, and sustainable development. Traditional solutions to the affordable housing crisis have yielded little results. Simply throwing more money at the problem won't help. Our guest today offers concrete solutions that have yet to be tried that I think could make a positive impact. Often, people with ambitious policy ideas don't have a plan for implementing them, leaving many people unconvinced. However, today's guest offers not just solutions, but concrete ways to implement these solutions as well. Mr. Ryback received his Master's in Real Estate and Urban Development from the American University and his JD from the American University's Washington College of Law. Together, we discuss the politics of a land value tax, why it isn't an additional tax for everybody, and what its implementation would look like from a legislative perspective. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate your introduction and good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to talk about land value return for affordable housing. And first off, how do we define you know, housing affordability? In the Rust Belt, median home prices, for example, in Akron is about $130,000. I think for many people on this seminar, that sounds pretty cheap. But if you're in Akron and you're unemployed, even a cheap home can be unaffordable. In Silicon Valley, median home price is about one and a half million. Now, uh, there you have a lot of families making six-figure incomes, but even they have trouble finding housing that they can afford. So are the bricks, the lumber, the plumbing supplies, or labor that much more expensive in Silicon Valley than in Akron? No, they're not. Uh, rather, it's the price of land that, that's much, that is that much more expensive. And this is a graph uh, created by my father um, who, who looked at inflation and different components of housing costs. And he looked at it between 1950 and 1980. And he looked at the consumer price index, which is a dotted line. He looked at the cost of labor and in wage uh, for construction workers. He looked at building materials and land. And this line right here that is inflation in land price between 1950 and 1980, which dwarfs inflation in all the other components, which runs along the bottom here. So that just goes to show that perhaps we don't have an affordable housing crisis. Maybe what we have is an affordable land crisis. Now, a lot of the folks that are concerned about affordable housing rely on a, a big toolkit of policies and programs. And these things would include homeowner tax deductions for mortgage interest and property taxes. Now, 
Folks often omit homeowner tax breaks from the list, but it's important to remember that more money in terms of foregone taxes was spent on homeowner tax breaks in 1980 alone than was appropriated for all low-income subsidies from the 1930s through 1980. So that's important to mention. Other tools include zoning, inclusionary zoning, increasing densities, reducing uh, or eliminating parking minimum requirements, vouchers and demand subsidies, price controls or rent control, low interest loans, both on the supply and demand side, public housing, subdivision regulations and building codes, job training, increasing the minimum wage, land write downs, and tax abatements. So the next slide is gonna look at how effective some of these tools can be. And unfortunately, because of our land tenure system, we have a situation where, as I say, no good deed goes unpunished. So the homeowner tax deductions are large, have been studied very extensively, and it's largely conceded that they simply increased housing prices. Increasing density through zoning will tend to raise land prices, and this too will lead to higher land prices. Uh, increasing wages and demand subsidies, if housing supply is constrained, will lead to higher land housing prices. And land write-downs and tax abatements for developers will increase taxes for everybody else and create resentment. Likewise, other supply-side subsidies will be ineffective if the real problem in a particular housing market is the lack of effective demand. We'll just build houses and they'll sit vacant. But these supply-side subsidies also will raise taxes and create resentment. So the traditional approaches seem to leave us unsatisfied. I hope this slide isn't too complex for people to understand. I know economists love to use fancy equations, so I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. But today, this afternoon, we'll try to see if there's an approach that could leave us more satisfied. So one way to sort of look at the root uh, of, of the uh, problem of this no good deed goes unpunished scenario is to look at how the money moves. So let's follow the money. In the upper left-hand corner, we have this upside down triangle, which is the public. And it's comprised of tenants, both commercial and residential, and landowners. And for landowners, there's a subset at the very tip, a small group of landowners who are the owners of prime sites. And prime sites are those sites that are best served by public infrastructure. Now the public pays taxes on labor and capital of the government. The government uses those taxes to create public goods and services. And those public goods and services, if they have a locational component, like parks and schools and roads and transit stops, water and sewer pipes, they're all in particular places. So when public goods and services have a place component, they create land value. And unfortunately, only a very small part of that trickles back to the public through land value return. The lion's share, 80 to 90% of publicly created land value ends up as a windfall to landowners. And most of that goes to owners of prime sites. So what the, the key takeaway from this slide is that most of us pay for infrastructure twice. First, we pay through our taxes for public goods and services. But then if we wanna take advantage of those public goods and services, we have to pay a rent premium 
to the owners of prime sites to get access to the infrastructure that our taxes paid for in the first place. So not a very good situation. So here's a potential remedy. And what this would be is simply in enhancing land value return. And as you can see, this is our before and this is our after. The main difference is that mo more of this publicly created land value is returned to the community that created it. And what this does is it creates a financial loop that allows infrastructure to become financially self-sustaining, if not completely, at least to a greater extent than it is today. And as a result, two really good things happen. One, taxes on labor and capital can be reduced because there's this huge influx of, of publicly created land value that's now funding the government. The other thing that's also important is that because land values are being returned to the government, land prices increase much less than they do under the status quo, which means that members of the public can pay smaller rent to get access to the infrastructure they've already paid for. And if you look at this rent arrow here, you'll see that compared to the status quo, that shrinks. So most of the rest of my talk will now talk about how do we move from where we are to where we ought to be. And part of the key is to understand the role that the traditional property tax plays in this scenario. And as I mentioned initially, very little publicly created land value is now returned to the public through the property tax. And this is because our property tax is basically upside down. If property owners uh, construct or improve buildings, they're punished with higher taxes. On the other hand, if property owners allow their buildings to deteriorate, they're rewarded with lower taxes. And owners of vacant lots pay much less than neighbors with buildings, even though it costs the city about the same to operate and maintain streets, sidewalks, sewers, and other utilities in front of similar sized properties, regardless of whether they are developed or vacated. So this illustrates how the existing property tax is really upside down and contributes to inequity. So what do we do about it? Well, I would suggest a land value return tax shift. And land value return can be implemented via a tax shift. And this means that the property tax rate applied to privately created uh, building values is reduced while the tax applied to publicly created land values is increased. The lower rate on building values makes buildings cheaper to construct, improve, and maintain in terms of life cycle costs. Surprisingly, the higher rate on land values keeps land more affordable by reducing the profits from land speculation. Thus, without any new spending or any revenue loss, a land value tax shift can make both buildings and land more affordable. So, in terms of politics, how do we move in this direction? There are both opportunities and challenges. The opportunities include a number of issues that make the land value return tax shift palatable. One of, of course, the one we're talking about today is the housing affordability crisis. In addition, communities are desperate for infrastructure funding. Communities are finding it difficult to afford sprawl. And finally, every, a lot of people are concerned about growing inequality 
So these are opportunities. Now, most jurisdictions, oh, another opportunity uh, that's really key here is that communities are already employing land value return. Most jurisdictions employ a traditional property tax that is levied against both the value of buildings and the value of land. So to the extent that they're levying the tax against land value, most communities are already practicing some degree of land value return. Gradually shifting the property tax off of building values and onto land values is an incremental change that can have profound and beneficial effects. And a gradual phase in will also help avoid creating windfalls and wipeouts that would make this change politically unpalatable. So here are the challenges. Very few understand the difference between taxing land values and taxing improvement values. Communities need state legislation to permit the imposition of different tax rates on land and improvements. And some states actually have laws that prohibit imposing different tax rates on land values and improvement values. Another challenge is that some proponents refer to this as a land value tax or as value capture. Most people don't understand either term. However, most people know that they don't like taxes. So if I propose a land value tax, I almost have a strike against me right off the bat because people hear the word tax and it makes them unhappy. And then value capture is not intuitive. And to many people, it sounds aggressive and hostile. So people will raise objections to land value return tax shift, and they'll raise objections. And here are some ways to overcome them. Somebody will say, what's wrong with the property tax? And we can respond by saying, well, it's upside down. It punishes people who provide housing and jobs while rewarding those who hoard land or allow buildings to deteriorate. And people will then say, well, why not simply eliminate the property tax? And our response could be, well, part of the property tax merely returns to the public land value that the public created in the first place. And if we allow this publicly created land value to become a windfall to private landowners, it encourages land speculation, a parasitic activity that increases rents and destroys jobs. So people will then say, well, if land value return is such a good idea, where is it done? As mentioned before, land value return is done almost everywhere that there's a property tax. Unfortunately, it's just too minimal to accomplish its objectives, and it's overshadowed by the adverse impacts that come from taxing privately created building values. Land value return is very robust in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, and it was partially responsible for transforming Japan and Taiwan from third world countries into first tier industrial economies. Land value return has also been implemented in Melbourne and in New South Wales, Australia. And as many on this seminar are aware, there are about 15 communities in Pennsylvania that are implementing it, including Harrisburg, the state capital. So it's not, oh, here's another objection that people will raise. Some people will say, it's not possible to assess land values and building values separately. Well, first of all, People do this every day. Every day, people are trying to buy and sell homes. And if you're trying to buy a home, there's a certain type of home, a style, a size, a condition that you want. And you will find this house in many different neighborhoods. But in each 
neighborhood, that home sells for a different price based on the quality of schools, transportation, proximity to jobs and housing, and other countless other features. And those differences aren't differences related to the condition or type of house, because we've said it's all pretty much the same. So what people are doing is they're valuing land and just saying, well, I'm willing to pay more in this neighborhood or I'm willing to pay less in that neighborhood because of the locational differences. So when people say you can't assess land values, everyday people do it every day. Furthermore, assessors, professionals who are trained in this, can use computer-assisted mass appraisal or CAMA systems. Many of these come with multiple regression modules, which under the right supervision can yield uh, the information that we're looking for here. Additionally, it's more important that assessments are fair than that they be absolutely accurate to the penny. So that's the key thing. And the International Association of Assessing Officers can provide assistance to your community on the issue of creating accurate and fair assessment. So what we're really calling for is a new approach toward affordable housing. The old approach is primarily philanthropy. Affordable housing is seen as philanthropy pursued through demand side or supply side subsidies, either privately provided or publicly provided. And in addition to looking at, at affordable housing as a charitable activity, at the same time, we're allowing private landowners to appropriate publicly created land values. This undermines and negates the effectiveness of the housing subsidies, increasing density, improving quality of life in distressed neighborhood. In fact, allowing private landowners to appropriate publicly created land values is responsible for that no good deed goes unpunished scenario that we talked about earlier. And it transfers wealth from public, from the general public to affluent landowners, exacerbating inequality. So what's the new approach? The new approach should be economic justice. First, reduce unnecessary costs. The property tax rate applied to building values has the economic impact of a 10% to 20% sales tax on, construct, on the cost of construction materials and labor. That's a huge impediment to affordability. And if we return publicly created land values to the community that creates them, that too is more just. It's understandable, it's equitable. And this tax shift makes both building and land more affordable without any new spending or any loss of revenue. So as we embark on this new approach, it's important that we be careful with language. That's why I talk about land value return or a tax shift, or I talk about the universal tax abatement, and I'll go into each of these. So if we go to a meeting where they're complaining about affordable housing or a lack of jobs or urban sprawl, and we say, oh, we can solve that problem with a land value tax. As I mentioned before, all the people in the audience will hear will be the word tax. They will assume that what you're talking about is a new tax, and they will reject this proposal without debate. And they won't hear anything you say in support of it. So instead, we should refer to any, any legislation that accomplishes this goal as a universal tax abatement act. It emphasizes that the tax rate will be reduced on all buildings and not just those of a favored few, as is typical with most abatement schemes. 
And if people say, well, what's the concept behind the Universal Abatement Act? The answer should be land value return because the term land value return scores better with focus groups than value capture or land value tax or any other term. Uh, land value tax uh, was not tested, but probably would get the worst reception. And the next slide is from uh, a study done by the Lincoln Land Institute of uh, the Lincoln Institute of, of Land Policy, where they asked people first, they said, what do you think about a policy that um, funds infrastructure with property values generated by that infrastructure? And 62% of the people, when they were explained the concept, said, oh, we think that's a great idea. And then they said, okay, here are some terms that explain this concept. What do you think about these terms? And when people said uh, land value capture, only 40% of the people liked it, and 30% really had a strong negative reaction. Land value return had a 52% favorable reaction and only a 14% negative reaction. So you can see the, the scale here. And the key thing to remember is that change is always hard. So let's not make it more difficult than it has to be by using terminology that people have a negative reaction to. If we refer to what we're doing as land value return, we get a leg up in a very difficult process. How does the pr traditional property tax compare to the universal tax abatement? Here's the traditional property tax. It's simply the building assessment and the land assessment times the tax rate equals tax liability. The universal tax abatement is simply the building assessment times a lower building rate plus the land assessment times a higher rate and you add those two together to get your tax liability. And the term universal tax abatement, I believe, will generate more favorable response from audiences than the term land value tax. So steps toward implementation, legislation. First, you need to, um, and I'm having trouble seeing this slide. Uh, you have to identify the stakeholders and develop outreach campaigns appropriate for each group. You have to um, look at the affordable housing groups. Uh, community land trusts, of course, share our philosophy. Anti-poverty, job creation, and economic development, labor unions, they all have a stake in this. And as you know, Black households make 60% of average white income, but Black households have only 10% of average white wealth. And again, that goes a lot to disparities in the housing market. So people who are interested in anti-poverty and social justice should get on board with this campaign. Environmental groups should support it because it, it reduces urban sprawl by promoting infill development. And uh, I think that, excuse me, sorry about this. There we go. So uh, we need to create a coalition of organizations and communities and agencies. Now, public agencies are probably not going to be able to lobby for land value return legislation, but politicians and the media will consult them. They'll ask the director of the Department of Housing and Community Development or the head of uh, economic development or the Office of Planning, what do you think about this idea? And if they've never heard about it, 
that may kill it right there. So it's very important that those of us who advocate land value return talk to the heads of public agencies, get them to understand and support this. And just it means we have to find out what their concerns are and respond to them. And even if they don't come out and endorse it, even if they just say, well, we won't oppose it, that in itself could be a victory. So again, what we have to do is we have to educate uh, politicians, we have to educate the public, we have to educate the media, we have to um, enact permissive laws at the state level, and then enact implementing laws at the local level. So that's how we get from where we are to where we need to be. And the land value tax shift will create the following consequences. It will reduce the cost to construct, improve, and maintain homes. It will reduce land prices. It will increase construction and maintenance activities, which will increase the housing supply and increase employment and effective demand. Also, an important part of affordable housing is to give people more income from which to pay their housing costs. Finally, if we increase employment and effective demand, we reduce the number of households requiring financial assistance. And it's important because even if we reduce the market price of housing by, let's say, 10%, and we can reduce the, the gap between what people have in income and what they can afford and 30% of their income, if we can reduce that gap, limited funds to help the very, very poor will help more households. I think the, the, the woman from the National Low Income Housing Coalition mentioned that today only 25% of households who are eligible for housing subsidies actually get them. And that's because housing subsidy funds are so limited. If we reduce the gap between market prices and people's income, those limited funds will help more households. So hopefully we've seen that land value return can change our no good deed goes unpunished situation to a situation whereby good deeds will yield good results. If you want more information, there's a link to an article here at the bottom. I'll put that in the chat. And here's my contact information. I'll put that in the chat also. Thank you very much for your attention. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.